So, John, have you ever gone on holiday by accident? Yes. No. Maybe? Oh, yes, I did. I did, sort of. When I was 17 years old, I wasn't a very popular boy in school. But um, as I got older, I kind of started hanging around with the cool, kind of, the cool boys. And I was invited very, very tangentially to go on a post-A-level trip to Malia, mm-hmm. which is a Greek island. It's like an, an 18 to 30 island. And I was so pathetically grateful to be invited that I said yes without even thinking. And that holiday turned out to be a complete nightmare because I did not enjoy Malia. So, yeah, I would say in that sense, I did go on holiday by accident because I would never knowingly go to a horrible 18 to 30 resort like that ever again. So, yes. Yes, I did. Good. Probably mm-hmm. drank about as much as well as they do in this <laughs> film in, on the holiday. So. <laughs> Good. All right. On with the episode. everybody to Beyond the Box Set, a podcast where we put prequels, sequels and spin-offs to films that don't have any. I'm Harry and joining me as always is John. Hello. And uh, another guest this week, my brother Sam Chappell. Hello. Um, Sam, why did you choose the film? I chose With Nell and I because, well I don't really know. I think you asked me if I wanted to do With Nell and I. You've, what? Talked, you've talked about it a lot. Is it, it's been, is it your favourite movie? I'm not the type to have favourites. It's definitely a film I associate with you because I lived with you for many years in our student days and this was a film that you watched a lot, talked about a lot and there's a quote from this film that I'm sure we'll get to that has been your ringtone for as long as I've known you. So if I was to to think of a film that I associate with you, it would be this film, so... I'd say it was formative, yeah, the film did come into my life at an early point when I was um, experimenting the different um, types of drugs that exist. It's okay, we already mainly, know that your parents don't listen to this, so... Yeah. Mainly, <laughs> mainly alcohol, of course. Yeah, of course, um, yeah. And caffeine, the, the legal drugs. Mm-hmm. I was just exploring those um, with friends. And um, this film dropped into our um, repertoire of, um, of things. How old were you when you first watched it? Probably 16, Okay, maybe. Mm-hmm. But and what, I think you can tell a lot about a person by kind of their favourite film, or the or films that kind of resonate to What is it about this film, aside from the fact that it introduced you to a lifelong habit of drinking lighter fluid and smothering yourself with deep heat. Other than that, what did it, um, <laughs> what, what kind of, it, why did it, why does this film appeal to you so much? Why has it stayed with you? Well, I think uh, the, the original appeal was the time that it's set in, the period, that kind of slightly more retro-y, retro, retro time where um, things seem a little bit more real and people are more connected with their, what they have or don't have. But then also, you could describe as dropouts or hippies, uh, you know, trying to make their way, um, or you know, just exist in the world, and so that that had an appeal uh, when I was younger. But why it's kind of carried on as um, as as an important piece, I don't know. For me, I find that it's um, it's got a lot of. It hasn't got a lot of plot. Not a lot no. happens, <laughs> um, and that's that's great because a film doesn't need. It, it demonstrates that a film doesn't need plot in order to be great, mm-hmm. and um, that's. Um, I think it makes a really important point with that. And you'd not seen this before, had you, Harry? No, I hadn't. So you watched it this week? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, what, I watched what it did, earlier this week. What, what did you make of it? I was watching the whole film just waiting for that one line, which is your text tone. <laughs> and I, I was getting more and more unconfident with it. Of, of just like, is, wait, is it actually this film? <laughs> have, have, have I just done the wrong film? Oh, this is going to be awful. And then it hit, and I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! <laughs> it really comes out of nowhere, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is what makes that line so amazing. Yeah. Like, it really does come out of nowhere. Um, Sam, could do your best impression of that line. Get in the back of the van! Placing you under arrest. That'd be ridiculous, I haven't done anything. Look here, my cousin's a QC. Get in the back of the van! <laughs> Now I had forgotten actually that that was not because I've heard, I've seen this film before many many years ago, but it's, it's not one I've watched a lot many many times compared to you. But that one line, as I say, because it was your ringtone in all the years that I've known you, <laughs> that that it has haunted me mm. that line. And I so I assumed it was a Richard E. Grant line. I thought he said it because he does obviously he's very animated in this film. So I again I, the same I was waiting I couldn't remember exactly where it occurs and then when it did occur and it's just the single line of this one extra and it's yeah. the only line in the whole he has in the whole film. 
Oh, it made me so happy. <laughs> so unbelievable. Such a line. Such delivery. It is. For yeah. me, it is, I like to imagine that he just got that line. You know, he got the script. He's like, well, you've got, so you're going to be working on this independent movie. And his agent's like, look, you've only got one line in this film. It's not much. It's, you're playing like police officer number two. Don't get your hopes up. Just come in, say your line, and then go home and just take the paycheck. And he just, you know, he, he sat there and he read his line. He thought, you know what? No, I can do something with this. And he... <laughs> This is the ultimate, like, making lemons out of lemonade. Because like, <laughs> he really took that line and made it iconic. It lives on. Like, the, so many other aspects of the film, that's, that, that has a solid place in popular modern culture, I think. Get in the back of the van! This film is so quotable. The script for this film should be studied as a piece of literature. It is genuinely beautifully written. Which is a strange thing to say about a film that is kind of so depraved. But it is a really, the, the language in it, and there's so many lines in it that are just so beautifully, beautifully written. And, and, and really, delivered. And delivered, and absolutely perfectly delivered. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Really, really, really good. Watching it back this week, I'd for, I found it to be just delightful. Just mm-hmm. I'd forgotten how kind of sad it is. Like, it's, re- it's so hilariously funny. But it does also have this deep underlying kind of melancholy to it, I think. There was definitely a sad element to it. I think maybe as you watch it when you were a kid, I don't know if you had this experience, Sam, but when you watch it when you're young and you just laugh at the funniness of it. like, yeah. And then as you get older, you, you see it from this perspective of you know, people clinging on to a period of life that's escaping them and kind of, yeah. you know, moving on and, you know, putting away... Well, not putting away childish things, not children, they're you know, drug addicts, but, you know, <laughs> this sense that, like, this, they're in this unsustainable situation and... Especially the end. The end really was like punching the guts to me because they he leaves like because it's without summarizing the whole plot. But so it's mm-hmm. with Nayland I, for the purpose of this in the whole film he famously I is the Paul McGann character I is own he never named but apparently his name is Marwood in the script. Oh wow! Yeah, I yeah. Never, I never knew. Yeah. Marwood. So yeah. So his name apparently is Marwood. Apparently there's like a, a one shot they figured this out from where there's like an envelope addressed to Marwood well, I think when he gets the job offer mm. but so I'm just because saying I throughout this whole kind of thing is going to be hard to listen to so I'm going to refer yeah. to him as either Paul McGann or Marwood mm-hmm. probably interchangeably but so Paul McGann Marwood's character and lives with this guy with Nail, which is Richard E. Grant obviously mm. in this weird codependent kind of constant drug and drink mostly alcohol spiral yeah. and at the end of the film Marwood decides after all the misadventures to go to leave he gets a job and he leaves him and the scene where he says goodbye to him is so sad because I think he just kind of wants out at that point mm. and he's quite distant and dismissive and he doesn't even want to walk out to the train station with him after you imagine they've been in this situation for a few years like it doesn't seem like it's a one mad weekend no. and then and then they just they say goodbye to each other and he goes off probably to, he cuts his hair symbolically and goes off to live his life to get his job in the theatre in Manchester yeah. and Richard E. Grant's character is just left alone and he does this speech from Shakespeare mm. and it's it was really sad because you, you do get the sense that this character is not gonna get out what a piece of work is a man how noble in reason how infinite in faculties how like an angel in apprehension how like a god the beauty of the world pagan of animals yet to me what is this quintessence of dust man delights not me no no women neither. No women neither. I got the sense that Richard E. Grant's character probably wasn't going to get out of his situation. It felt like he was kind of trapped in kind of a quite a sad way. I don't want to put a horrible, depressing Paul over your favourite film of all time. I don't <laughs> I <was> like... <laughs> no, I think the sadness of it is um, it, it's, it's part of the brilliance. Mm. And there's loads of different layers of it. There's mm-hmm. the of the, co- the 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 social commentary of uh, them being on the dole and mm. then needing their benefits uh, in order to kind of fund their lifestyle um, and then uh, there's the the fact that they they still kind of go out with uh, the the li- very little that they have they they go on a holiday by mistake um, <laughs> and um, and then they then they're in Penrith and it's just as depressing if not more depressing um, well they make out as though it's as bad as could be yeah. Yeah, it was the yeah. worst thing in the world. And they did. I mean, did they have it good in London? I mean, there was um that the wrecking ball was smashing buildings apart, mm. and they were leaving London. So, yeah. you know, there's that symbolism of uh, their old life being smashed apart, and they drive away to to the Dales to to go and um, have a holiday, and then it they have to come back to get their benefit, and it all goes wrong. And mm. I don't know. Well, it's like you said. You said how it appealed to you when you watched it because it had this kind of retro thing of looking back at this kind of almost idealised time of living in this kind of hippie kind of commune and it's not 
really heavy-handed about that. They're not like some of the supporting characters are like classic hippies, but those two mm. aren't especially. But it does have that kind of sixties kind of vibe. And but then at the end of the film, even the Danny, the character who makes the Cumberwell carrots, which we'll get to, um, he actually says he gives this kind of speech about how it's the end of the era, and it really is yeah. moving into the seventies and this kind of Thatcherism kind of you know what's coming for the world, mm-hmm. and that kind of period is definitely moving. Yeah. Which it does. The whole film does have this sense of them trying to run away from an end that they can't get away from. They, they can't stay in this position forever because time does move on and yeah. they try and escape it by moving, by going to the countryside but it, it still catches up with them wherever they go. So, yeah. Yeah. That's bleak. Anyway, happier subject. Because <laughs> as we did talk about how amazingly quotable this film is, so I want to know what your favourite quote of this entire film is. I'm not the type to have favourites. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, the one that's been with me the longest is probably the one that I, I relate to the most and that's the... Get in the back of the van. The text message to mm-hmm. him, yeah. Get in the back of the van! I'm not such a fan of the the main quote, quoted line from that film. Mm-hmm. Which one's that? There's so many I can't even tell you which yeah. the, the number one is. That's uh, the one where Monty comes into uh, the bedroom. Oh, I mean to have you, the... boy, even if it must be bedroom. No, 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 not even that one. No, the one where he breaks into the cottage. Okay. Um, and um, they're petrified because they think, they think they're going to be murdered by the poacher. Oh, yeah. And then uh, they find out it's Monty. Oh, Monty, you terrible cunt. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I'd leave that one for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me, it wasn't considered of me not to have telegrammed. What are you doing, panning around in the middle of the fucking night? Yeah, I'm not sure if that one, that one does it for me. Um, the stop clock telling the same time twice a day. Yeah. Know, that's a great line. I didn't know if that was original to the film or that's like an old proverb, but yeah, because yeah. I've heard that a lot. But I've yeah, never, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great saying, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, by the way, listeners, if you can hear some background noise, it's because it's bonfire night. Yeah, <laughs> so that's fireworks. <laughs> There's a lot of fireworks in the background. Yeah. Oh, the night before. It's yeah. Oh, so it's maybe something else. Celebration for this episode. Yeah, yeah. People, yeah we finally got someone to an episode. Fans Let the joy be confined. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Harry, what, was your, what quote stood out to you in this? Help! We've gone on holiday by mistake. That's a good one. A very good one. Yeah. <laughs> I do like the. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Are you the farmer? Of course, he's a fucking farmer. <laughs> <when> the... <laughs> are you the farmer? Shut up! I'll deal with this. We've gone on holiday by mistake. We're in this cottage here. Are you the farmer? Stop saying that, Whitmill. Of course he's a fucking farmer. And then there's... You can tell it's him. His legs bound in polythine. <laughs> That's a great line as well. Never, never heard polythene uh, pronounced that way. Or plastic mm. pronounced polythine. Mm. You have to see me, son. He runs this farm. Where is your son? Up in Topfield. You can't miss him. His legs bound in polythene. Well, I guess the Penrith scenes may have had a different kind of context for you two because you grew up on a farm, well, not on, on farm land, not on a farm. Yeah. So was there any kind of that aspect of it that kind of growing up around farmers that kind of rang true or that you just found particularly funny with the cows or the... Well, the, 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 the shutting the gate. Yeah. It's such a city thing to do. Shut mm. that gate and keep it shut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you just, you shut the bloody gate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, there are bits that I can relate to a bit, like the cottage they were in, not having any power, and it's difficult to find food and water and get warm and get dry. And I mean, yeah, we have, we've got power in our parents' house, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I can definitely relate to just the struggle of it all. Put that gate and keep it shut. I absolutely loved almost everything about Uncle Monty. I thought he was wonderful. And the line that made me laugh the hardest was uh, when he says to Marwood something about, I've never been able to stand the sight of uncooked meat. As a boy, I used to weep in butcher's shops. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good one, yes. Uh, now, garlic, rosemary, and salt. I can never touch meat until it's cooked. As a youth, I used to weep in butcher's shops. Who's your favourite character? It's kind of probably hard to say, or maybe it's really obvious, I don't know. For me, it's, of main characters, it's Withnail. Withnail, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be Withnail, really. Yeah. Yeah. Richard, Either that or Policeman Number 2. Policeman Number 2, <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> so it's Policeman Number 2, Withnail, the rest. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I mean, talk about being, like, the role he was born to play. Yeah. He is... It, it's so good because it's not like so many people play good drunks, but I've never seen it played quite like that before. It's like everything comes from within. His eyes are incredible. He just 
embodies it in such an interesting way. Like the way his eyes flicker and mm. this kind of hint of madness and this kind of the way he's so kind of thin and emaciated and yeah, as, yeah, because when he's just walking around in his underpants, like smeared in deep heat, and he's so skinny, he looks like he's already died. Like. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to get some boobs. It's the only solution for this intense cold. Something's got to be done. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor, reduced to the stakes of a bum. I mean, look at us. Nothing that reasonable members of society demand as their rights. No fridges, no televisions, no phones. Have you been at the controls? What are you talking about? The thermostats. What have you done to them? I haven't touched them. Then why has my head gone numb? I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze. I've only ever seen him playing versions of this, like this kind of very high maintenance, kind of drunk kind of character. Mm-hmm. And yet he's actually a teetotaler in real life because he has a condition. I read that he has a condition where his body can't metabolize alcohol. Okay. Wow. So he's literally never had a drink in his life. <laughs> so he can't be drunk. He's never experienced he's being never drunk. Ex- yeah, which is amazing, which makes this performance all the more impressive. Which proves that method acting is just not needed. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, to be fair, the director made him get made him drink, even though his body can't handle it. At least that you have to get drunk at least once so you know what the experience is. Mm. So he did actually force him to like get drunk before they did the film so he could have an understanding of what it felt like. And apparently it just made him absolutely sick as a dog because, as I say, his body can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And also the scene where he drinks the lighter fluid, the director put, obviously not like because that may have killed him, yeah. but put vinegar <laughs> in the glass and didn't tell him, told him it was like water. So his reaction there is, is genuine where he like... <laughs> He knew he had to vomit, so he, in the script he had to vomit, but his reaction of complete, like, where he drinks and just like, has to, like, almost dry heave was a, a genuine reaction because he drank vinegar, <laughs> not knowing he was going to drink vinegar. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, they did it differently in those days, yeah? Yeah, they really did. <laughs> I have to say, I don't know, this might just be me, I didn't like Marwood, I. I, I thought he was a great character, but I found him really hard to like. Yeah, it was, it was a little boring almost, but maybe that was just in comparison. It wasn't that he was boring to me. I just found him to be a, a dislikable character. First of all, because there is there is an element of kind of gay panic in this film that I think it's played mm. in a way that it, it gets away with it. Like, I've seen it done much worse. I think the fact that Richard um, Griffiths, is it Richard Griffiths? Who plays Uncle Monty, mm-hmm. is so good. It kind of overcomes it a little bit. But the character of Marwood, I just found really... The, the whole film, it seems like he's in a constant terror of homosexuality and of, mm. particularly of gay sex. To the point where I thought, I actually have a theory that it's deliberate and that the character is a latent homosexual. Did you guys, what did you think of like the homosexuality in this film? Like obviously Uncle Monty is very much gay. But did you ever pick up on kind of a, like a homoeroticism between, did you ever think that all, there is kind of, or did you just think of them as friends or did you think there was kind of more to it just from watching it? Yeah, I, 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 saw, I sort of saw a bit of homoeroticism in it and, mm-hmm. I really thought that Withnail fancied I, mm. but was it the other way around? Or that I? Well, there's no, there's no, right, there's no right or wrong answer. It's, no, it's mm. never clear because that's, that's the thing. There's layers and layers of deception that go on in the film because mm. they get the, uh, they go to visit Uncle Monty and they, he gives them the key to his cottage, and to, in order to get that, we find out later, Withnail has told Uncle Monty that Marwood is in love with him. Mm-hmm. And I, f- I forget why that means they need to go and live in a cottage together, but whatever. Um, but, but that's like the, the story he tells Uncle Monty, which is why Uncle Monty then makes a pass at Marwood later, because Withnail has told him that he has sex with men in toilets and, and, or something, mm-hmm. and that also he's in love with him, Withnail. Mm-hmm. And then Marwood, when Uncle Monty makes a pass at him, says, oh no, he's lying, he's in love with me, and he's just never been able to accept it. And it's like, but the whole thing is then played off as that they're both lying just to kind of throw Uncle Monty off the scent. Mm-hmm. So it's never really clear if there's anything going on or not. But I just felt like their relationship had this very kind of homoerotic quality. Like, you know, they're mm. bathing in front of each other, like they share a bed. <clears throat> they're very, very, very codependent. Mm. There's no women in this film. Apart from the only woman is the old woman in the house who has like one scene. There's no sexualized women in the film. And there's no sense that they're looking for women. No, they never talk about women. That That's just not, a factor in the film at all so yeah. it was very ambiguous there was a scene where Withnall yelled out of the car window and the two school oh that's girls. true he calls the young girl scrubbers yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was very hostile I don't it was yeah but I mean, I just I noticed like a running theme. For instance, one of the earliest scenes in the film, Marwood is reading the paper about a trans woman. 
Yeah. He's, one of the yeah. things is he's reading this thing about it's, it's like a sun headline like man finds it's very 60s you know man finds happiness after becoming a woman kind of thing and it's there's this sense that he's slightly appalled by this and then there's a scene in the London pub where he someone calls him a ponce and then he has this he completely melts down yep. and then he goes to the toilet and he sees a sign that says I fuck arses yep. and he's like who fucks arses this guy fucks arses maybe he's going to fuck my arse and then and then there's just this constant level of anxiety and it just keeps coming up. And then with Uncle Monty, who does admittedly, you know, come on pretty strong. <laughs> I'm not excusing Uncle Monty's behaviour. But like, that being said, like when he first visits Uncle Monty, he's like, he's insane and he's clearly a raving homosexual. And there's just, and obviously the film is set in a certain time. So you've got to take that into account as well. But they're just, con- it seems yeah. like Marwood in particular has this constant, constant, constant terror of, homosexuality to the point where I thought is this is this an issue for you because so for, the, for that reason I found Marwood a little bit dislikable because I found that a because I found his character a little bit homophobic like his, his per- I, I mean I felt like his character as a character was homophobic not the portrayal of his character so I think I don't think the film is a homophobic film by any means I think that, that his character is portrayed as mm. somewhat homophobic I could hardly piss straight with fear he was a man with three quarters of an inch of brain who taken a dislike to me what have I done to offend him? I don't consciously offend big men like this. This one has a definite imbalance of hormone in him. Getting him more masculine than him, you'd have to live up a tree. I fuck asses. I fuck asses. Maybe he fucks asses. Maybe he's written this in some moment of drunken sincerity. I'm in considerable danger in here. I must get out of here at once. Can we also talk about Richard E. Grant's coat? Which to me was a secondary character in this film. Yeah. <laughs> the coat that he had always on, which literally went down to the, he like the high collar that went down to yeah. his feet. But that seems like part of Richard E. Grant. As yeah, well. exactly. I mean, it's is, so is much that something that 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 he's that is still him. Well, that's what I mean. I wonder if he brought that to the character, or if that char- that character is so is now so associated with him mm. that he has got this this like modern dandy kind of vibe because. He's always. I always was really distracted by his scarf, which is always flung very, very delicately oh, over yeah. one shoulder, yeah. and in a way that would be very hard to walk with and keep it there. But like he always does. <laughs> yeah. like it's always just perfectly positioned on his shoulder. Yeah, yeah it feels like it was well cast. That yeah. coat. Yes, I agree. That, <laughs> coat. That, that coat must smell so bad. <laughs> it was one of those films where it would be nice to have a smell track as well as a soundtrack. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Uh, because. Um, you know, not only would it bring the the smell, the comparison, the contrast between the between London and Penrith, mm. the countryside, into kind of sharp perspective, but also you would get an idea of the matter in the sink, and you'd get an idea of the lighter <laughs> fluid, and you'd get an idea of the deep heat smell on unwashed body, um, <laughs> and um, God knows what else. The back of the back of the police van, the um, Camberwell carrot, obviously. Oh, indeed. Goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> The smell of that chicken roasting. Oh, God, that chicken. Oh, that looks so... Just awful. Like a poor... Such a poor excuse for a meal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Have you ever, have you ever t- actually attempted the drinking game for this film? Because there is a fame, the famous one, obviously. You should drink along with... Drink whatever they drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... No. No, good. No, well, no, you're no. standing here in front of us alive, so that yeah, tells yeah. me that you didn't. Does that include lighter fluid? No, apparently there's a substitute for lighter fluid. I think you have a supposed to drink like 100% proof or something, or something God. something bad, but not that won't kill you. you okay, know? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, no, I've never tried, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't dream of trying. The thing is that you don't ever actually see them drink all the drinks. No. You so just, they just order the drinks. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of ordering um, drinks, which is less fun. Yeah. yeah. Much less fun. <laughs> so I guess the drinking game is you have to drink the drinks that, that, that are featured in the film. Yeah. I wonder how many variations on the rules there are in the various yeah. iterations of his of his game. Well, the, the the funny thing is, there's a recurring thing whenever the whenever the last order's seen, they'll say, "Okay, so we'll have two whiskeys and four ciders then," like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which we've all done. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you would have to really like down. If you're going to drink every drink that appears on screen that we presume them to have drunk. In, in the space of 110 minutes, you're going to be very, very unwell. Yeah, but I wonder what other games could be played apart from the standard. Well, that leads on nicely to our next section, which is drinking games of this film. Mm. Do you have any, Sam? Or? None specifically come to mind, apart from the main one. Apart from the main one. I had a few. Do you have any, Harry? Yeah, I got one. Okay, cool. Uh, do, you want, do you want to go first? Or? Yes, mine was drink whenever the music steals the scene. Oh, yes. You haven't actually talked about that yet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which so go on. I did then listen to the soundtrack afterwards when I was writing my idea, and 
there's only about three or four actual songs in it. Mm-hmm. So really not that many. I, like I was watching it, it's like, oh my god, this soundtrack is so great. And I was mm-hmm. expecting it to be like a full album. Yeah. And but you do hear each song almost in full. Pretty much, and yeah. it's so loud. Yeah. As well. Mm. Yeah. Especially that that opening number. Who was it? King Curtis um, playing White Shade of Pale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's White Shade of Pale. Is it all on the Watchtowers there as well? Yeah. And uh, while my guitar gently weeps, and there's another one as well. I forget. Uh, Led Zeppelin. Maybe I'm not sure which point. I can't remember. I, I know there's there's another one. Maybe the driving. I think, but I can't remember what one it is. I don't. Remember. It's something with a. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. But I did write that down too. I wrote down drink every time there's an aggressively long guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a few others stuff we've already mentioned. Obviously, drink for homoerotic moments. There's gonna be lots. Uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly involving Uncle Monty. Yeah. yeah. Who I really felt for. I don't know. Maybe I'm somewhat biased in this but I I did feel a lot of sympathy for Uncle Monty obviously yeah he does threaten to rape Marwood which is not cool but on the whole he's very caring to them and he really looks after them and he's very generous with mm. them and they really take advantage of the poor well, old guy ev- everyone's leading each other on this film yeah. in certain ways in different ways mm-hmm. but yeah the generosity it stems mainly from either the state which again you know that's a questionable generosity or, mm-hmm. um, or Uncle Monty yeah. and um he is sincere a lot of the time as well. Mm. Um, his adoration of carrots is—it's <laughs> um, um, just—it's fantastic. And to let something out, which seems to be quite a, quite—it's quite a personal thing to, mm. to to have that kind of infatuation with vegetables. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, he seems to be often the most sincere of them all, mm-hmm. apart from maybe Withnall in his blindest, drunkest moments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a sense of real like loneliness to him, which I found very touching. Like He seemed like a very lonely character. And also, as I say, even though he put, he comes on very strong and, and he definitely crosses a lot of lines, he's acting on all of this because Withnail has led him to understand that Marwood is struggling with his sexuality. Mm. And then when he when Marwood says, oh, actually, me and Withnail are in a relationship and we're, that's, I can't possibly cheese on him, and mm. he, he backs off. He does back off, and yeah. he. I'm yeah. not saying, oh, cool, he didn't rape someone, what a prince, but like, <laughs> but like, then he leaves, like he just leaves them alone, and that's the last we see him on Comanche. I thought mm-hmm. that was really sad. Mm-hmm. He did strike me as a very poignant character in that sense. I felt, and a lot of that came from Richard Richard Griffiths being so good in that role, and and giving it that kind of depth that another actor could have played that as just a kind of an offensive stereotype of like the lecherous gay man, yeah. but he played it in this really beautiful kind of you know with all this regret and longing and tenderness that I thought was very very sweet. Yeah. Said Monty, something I have to explain to you. You needn't explain. He's told me everything. He told me that first day you came to Chelsea. What what's he told you? He told me about your arrest in the Tottenham Court Road. He told me about your problems. How you feel. Your desires. Problems? What problems? You are a toilet trader. He told you that? You mustn't blame him. You mustn't blame yourself. I know how you feel and how difficult it is. And that's why you mustn't hold back. Let it ruin your youth, as I nearly did over Eric. I think there could be um, a drink for whenever someone's trying to deception someone else. Oh yeah, the lies. Oh yeah, drunk mm. deception. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. Again, you just be solidly drinking with the film. Well, exactly. It's, it's fantastic. The off-the-cuff lies are my favourites, though. The ones that Richard E. Grant just comes up with to get out of a spot. <laughs> There's so many. Well, when the guy who calls Marwood a pumps then squares up to him in the pub, and then he says, "What does he say at first? He says, "I have a medical condition." Oh, yeah. And then, then the guy's like, "I don't care." He's like, "I have children." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're in danger. We've got to get out. What are you talking about? I've been called a pumps. What fucker said that? I called him a punce. And now I'm calling you one. Punce! Would you like a drink? What's your name, Matt? Fuck! I have a heart condition. I have a heart condition. If you hit me, it's murder. I'll murder the Perius! My wife is having baby. He doesn't miss a beat. It's constant, constant. Yeah. Like it's amazing his ability yeah. to come up with these lies. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I also had bizarre food moments, which we've all discussed, obviously, or dead animals in general. Food moments slash dead animals in general. So we have like the chicken that they attempt to shove into a kettle to boil yeah. after half plucking it. <laughs> then they kind of string it up as this kind of marionette in the stove to kind of cook it. We never see how that turns out. Probably uh, yeah, the best. No. <laughs> There's the guy who has the eels down his pants. Yep, the poacher. <laughs> the poacher. Yeah, I just find that so random that this drunk guy. <laughs> 
walks in, just gets an eel out of his trousers and just whacks it on the table and then just goes about his business. That's just as though nothing's happened. Well, he, he doesn't go about his business. He pulls himself off a pint from the bar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then he's, he's got the eel down his pants and he has the dead pheasant under his shirt. So he's, he's just like yeah. covered in dead animals. Wearing animals. Yes. <laughs> well, that's for his pot and that's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these are for his pot. Yeah, they all have a purpose. That's the thing. It's not random. Yeah. Um, and obviously, there's the hair that is hanging above the door. Oh, yeah. Hair, hair, hair. No, no, it's here, hair, here. Here, hair, here. Sorry, my apologies. Yeah. Here, hair, here. Here, hair, here. Here, hair, here. Good old Jake. So, drink for dead animals. Um, <laughs> I've got one more, and this is a very a niche. Grim drinking yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one more. This is a very niche one. But this might just be me. But this this is one that I would definitely drink for, which is drink for fabulous background ornaments. Wow! Because every room that they're in at any point is so interestingly decorated, and there's so many weird little things. Every time you see something, you're like what's that? Like what's that doing there? For instance, in the London pub, there's a, it's like on screen for like a second. Mm. But when they're at the standing at the bar, and the guy who calls Marwood de Ponce comes up and squares up, and you see them standing at the bar, and there's there's a moment when one of them moves and sitting on the bar. For no reason, it never comes up. Is a giant pineapple. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what's that doing there? <laughs> I think it's actually a ceramic pineapple. Oh, I paused wow. it. It looked like it was like a giant ceramic. I think it was a tip jar. I think it was like a pineapple tip jar. It was mm-hmm. bizarre. And then Uncle Monty's house is just a treat. Yeah. Oh yeah! Everything. It's just all the, the potted rhubarbs. Oh, yeah. Uh, the the radishes. <laughs> Basically, his entire flat seems to be potted root vegetables. And Grecian statues of men having anal sex. <laughs> that's just his. That's his decor. That's his. That's his thing. Wow, yeah. I never spotted that. Next time you watch it, yeah. just look around. Any the scenes in his house, just look at what his his yeah. house is decorated with. Yeah. And then in the pub in the lake in Penrith, the Penrith pub, there's an alligator behind the bar. Is it the crown? I think it's the, yeah. yeah. I wonder if that's the same crown my parents go to. I wonder. Do they live in Penrith? Huh. Um, I also look out for this crocodile now. There's a crocodile behind the bar. Yes, I noticed that. Yeah. I remember noticing that one. Yeah, and also a pair of ice skates hanging down from the wall for no reason. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Just lots of funny little ornaments show up. It's, they must be by choice. It must be like, oh, it's so interesting. But, yeah. So yeah, drink every time you spot something in the background. You're like, what's that? <laughs> Any more? No. So, sequels? Yes, definitely. Uh, do you want me to go first this time? Or yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, cool. So... I really struggled with this, this film, because I think this film is so good. I really think this film is fantastic. It's such a perfect, self-contained, sad little story mm-hmm. that I don't really want to know what happens to the characters afterwards, particularly. I don't feel like I need to. Yeah. And also, I can't even conceive of it being remade because the actors are so perfect. Yeah. Like, who, who else but Richard E. Grant could play that character? The only people I could think would be Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders. Because I've, I've mentioned on other episodes, I feel like... Rich D. Grant is the male Joanna Lumley. Or possibly Joanna Lumley is the female Richard D. Grant. I can't mm. figure it out. Mm. But yeah. they, I don't know why they've never done a film together. But they should. Like Patsy meets Withnail. It would be such a good film. <laughs> so, but I was thinking if ever you could remake... The only other characters that I've ever seen on screen take so much drink and drugs and live for it to see another day other than these two is Patsy and Adina from Absolutely Fabulous. Yeah. So like maybe an all-female version with them. So that was one idea, but I didn't really do anything with it. Another thought I had was maybe to have a... Again building on the kind of weird sexuality that I saw in this film. And again, also the heavy drinking. So I thought maybe have Lena Headey from Game of Thrones playing with Nail, because okay. we know she can handle a drink. Mm-hmm. And have uh, Nikolai Costa-Wilder, who plays Jamie Lannister, mm-hmm. play Marwood. So it's like, you know... Okay, yeah, camera. yeah, I could see that. And then have Mark Addy, who played Lena Headey's husband, who died in the first series. Um, Baratheon. Mark Addy, who played Robert Baratheon, oh, yeah. as Monty, as Uncle Monty. Oh, yeah, the guy from uh, <coughs> The Full Monty. The guy from The Full Monty, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because he's got the physicality, he's a big mm-hmm. guy, he's also, right. you know, yeah, yeah. You, it would fit in with that kind of weird love triangle kind of situation. Yeah. So well, that could be kind of cool. But again, that's as far as I got with it. Yeah. So my main idea is it got, this got a little bit theoretical, so you'll have to bear with me a little yeah. bit. So are you familiar with the Freudian theory of the id and the ego? No. Okay. So, almost. But... So this is a famous, Sigmund Freud, one of his most famous psychoanalytical theories is about the human psyche. And his theory was that the human psyche is made up of the id and the ego, these two sides that balance each other out. And the id is the primitive instinctual part of the brain in which is contained all our sexual and aggressive drivers. It's quite infantile. They say mm. that babies are pure id because right. they haven't developed an ego yet. So they're all about primitive desires and instant gratification. So it's like, I want to drink, I will drink. I want to eat, I will eat. And there's no sense of 
forward planning. There's no sense of consequence. Mm. So clearly that's Withnail. Mm. That's his character. He mm-hmm. is pure id. Mm-hmm. I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze. And then the ego is the moral, rational side of the brain, which mediates the id. The ego want, often wants the same thing the id wants, whether that be love or food or sex or drink or something. But it, it kind of, it's the side of the brain that then says, okay, we want these things, but what's a rational, sensible, non-self-destructive way of getting them? Yeah. And it brings them down to a more grounded level. But often it can be overpowered by the id, which can result in extreme anxiety. So I thought, well, that's clearly Marwood. I... Because A, yeah, he's yeah. often trying, he's like, don't drink lighter fluid, you'll die. But he, he definitely is railroaded by Withnail. Withnail is usually gets his way, and Marwood is kind of dragged along in the slipstream. Mm-hmm. And this causes Marwood to have lots of anxiety attacks. Like, obviously, there's lots of scenes where he is just in his own head, you get his inner monologue where he's just yeah, freaking yeah. out. So I thought, maybe this whole film is like an allegory for the human psyche. And so maybe the only way to remake this film satisfactorily, for me, would be a kind of a shot for shot remake in which you realise that. Withnail and Marwood are actually the same person. Like Fight Club. Oh, wow, right. Fight Club mixed with something like Drop Dead Fred, where like there's a, a physical embodiment of your, your psyche, basically, your brain. <laughs> so that's my idea, basically. Either it's going to be a Fight Club scenario where it's one person and everyone else around is seeing one person, but he thinks it's two people. Mm-hmm. Or it's Inside Out where it's all happening in one person's brain and it's just they're just reflections of, you know, Richard E. Grant and Marwood are both reflections of the two sides of the brain and they're just battling out and there's some poor third person we don't know yet who is being driven by these warring sides. (laughs) So I thought maybe we'll open with present day Paul McGann, uh, i.e. Marwood. Maybe he's he's in some kind of mental health facility where he's had some kind of nervous breakdown. So it's just him talking to a psychologist, reflecting on this pivotal moment in his life, in his youth, that defined the rest of his life. Obviously, which is the events of Withnail and I, you know, when he went on this bender with his friend. So then we get flashbacks to the original film, but maybe through the magic of CGI, we erase one of them so we can see now that it's only one character the whole time. Because I think it's plausible because he spent all this time around people like Danny who were just so stoned out of their gourd. They're probably not going to call him up on it and say, you know you're the only person here, right? They're probably yeah. just like, oh yeah, there's two of you, fine, whatever, man. Drink, yeah. have, a, have a Campbell or carrot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And maybe that's why everyone else, like all the normal people in Penrith, yeah. or, or in the pubs, yeah. are really hostile to him because he's a crazy person. He's talking to himself and that's why people treat him strangely. Isn't it? Think of the scene in the tractor when he's like, of course he's the fucking farmer. Like, imagine that's just one person talking to himself. Like, Because the farmer never really lets on that there's two of them particularly. It's kind mm-hmm. of, it could just be one person drinking. Or Imagine one person drinking all of those drinks as well. Like, the levels of self-destruction. So, so I thought about that for I thought that, that, that could work. That could just run through the whole film. But then I thought there is one character who doesn't fit into this which is Uncle Monty well, indeed I yeah, was just yeah. thinking that however Freud's theory this fits really nicely is that there are, the brain is a free tiered system so you've got the id and the ego and you also have the super ego and the super ego is the moral conscience that pushes the id and the ego to be the, their ideal selves through learned behaviour so it's like learning from your mistakes for example if the ego gives in to the id's demand the super ego might make them feel bad through guilt yeah. also it's the ideal self which is the imaginary picture of how you ought to be and it represents things like career aspirations, how to treat other people, and how to behave as a member of society. And I really feel like that's Monty in many ways because he really sits in between the two characters in terms of personality because he's obviously very driven by gratification. Yeah, he drinks a lot, he obviously eats a lot, he pursues sex quite aggressively, but he's also a very generous, caring person. And there is a rationality to him that the other two characters don't have. He does seem to have something of a moral compass compared mm-hmm. to the other two. You know, he's really looking out for their best interests in his own clumsy kind of yeah, way. That's interesting. Yeah, so for me, psychologically, get, getting very theoretical, that means that he, Uncle Monty represents the possibility of evolution and of bettering oneself. In the film, Withnail and I invite Uncle Monty into their lives, you know, but they also violently reject him when he pushes them too far to break the status quo, mm. when he pushes Marwood to come out of the closet and to be gay, whether or not he actually is, when he pushes that... They violently reject him. And I, I interpret it as, if he's the super ego, he's pushing them to explore areas of themselves that they're not comfortable exploring. And so they reject that completely, which is a very common psychological thing. People often reject the super ego. They reject this idea of growth and development. So once the super ego has been repressed, i.e. once he's left them in Penrith, the ego and the id lose that mediating influence, causing an irrevocable split between the two of them because there's nothing to mediate them. Mm-hmm. So Marwood, i.e. the ego, then retreats into this vision of a safer, more mundane future where he gets like a safe, normal job in Manchester, yeah. cuts his hair symbolically, mm. and leaves, abandons Withnail, to the id, to his lonely, self-destructive existence in London. Which in psychological terms, I guess, means that the ego has abandoned the, the id and the brain, and Marwood goes on a total downward spiral of alcoholism and drug addiction, which is the Richard E. Grant character, which we expect after the film. 
without Marwood to look after him, without Uncle Monty to look after him, he's probably going to go to some very dark places. Mm. So my idea is that if they're all one character, the film is building towards this complete psychotic break in which all the three of them are separated. <laughs> and that's kind of it. As wow. then maybe it ends with him as, as an older man, 20, 30 years later. Maybe, maybe he just finally comes out after this mental breakdown, comes out of the closet, makes peace with himself and gets on the road to recovery. Who knows? But yeah, that was... <laughs> That was my idea. It was a bit, a bit wow. out there, but yeah. Very conceptual. Yeah, yeah. I really, I got, I, I like psychology. I don't know if you noticed this, but uh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I, st- I started on that. Like, oh, that, that might work. I, I might throw a bit of id and ego in there. And I was like, my God, this works perfectly. And then, like, <laughs> and then I was like, really? Yeah, so. <laughs> so yeah, mic drop. Has it got a name? Uh, yes, it does have a name. My name for that sequel is With Nail and Myself and I. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sam, do you want to go next? Wow, yeah, I mean... It doesn't have to be as in-depth as that. Can't quite steal the show from that one. I'm yeah, <laughs> feeling pretty unconfident about mine now as well. Well, well put, very well put. Um, well, next time you watch this film, think about it from that angle. I, might I change think the, like, it's inevitable that yeah, I will. Yeah. It does all start together really well. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I look forward to trying to find a hole in it. Oh, I'm sure there'll be many, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, one last one. Did you know this film is based on a unpublished novel by the writer-director? Right. And at the end of the novel, what happens is that it didn't make it into the film. After the events at the end of the film, where obviously Marwood leaves and mm. with Nail is left alone in the park and gives a very sad speech, mm. the book ends with him then going back to his apartment, drinking an entire bottle of wine and then shooting himself. Oh, wow. So it ends on a real bleak note of him killing himself. So again, it ties in with this whole sense that without those two other characters, yeah, he just yeah, he's he's lost. So yeah. goodness me, I've re- I feel like I've added so many bleak levels. You to really have. This has been our most Hello. upsetting episode ever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, tell us your idea. Well, not knowing how the book ends, mm-hmm. <laughs> I went from how the film ends and took my sequel from there, and it is actually just revisiting the cast and the character stories just with that 30 year break. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if it's set in the 60s, that means it's now set in the 90s. Maybe it's a 30 or 40 year break. It's It'd be 1999. D- but it's bringing it into kind of, you know, the, the kind of modern hmm. modern yeah. times that a lot of us can relate to now. 99 would be cool because it's, again, it's, it's this sense of an end of one era moving on to another, the whole millennium thing. Well, that could be really yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't go into that kind of detail. Okay. Mine was, it was I, the I character, Marwood. You Marwood, said? yeah. He had been through this career that had started at the end of the last film. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 30, 40 years of uh, an acting career, not really making it in the sense of getting famous and having established roles that he's uh, famously well known for, but, you know, finding his way. A bit of theatre here, a bit of TV there. Broated Hollyoaks. Yeah. The <laughs> Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Many would regard him as an old man. I don't think he was ever really comfortable uh, in himself. He's between contracts. He doesn't know where he's going to go next. And... Uh, Feels like he, you know, is almost looking for a way out, something new, finding himself, finding his life again, finding out who he is, and so he goes back uh, to Penrith, mm-hmm. just as a, as a thought that springs in his head, not with any kind of plan. He just wants to get out of London. Uh, man, yeah, I think he, over his career, he'll have moved from Manchester and ended up back in London okay. or, or whatever. He uh, inevitably in Penrith um, bumps into Withnall. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Monty passed away. He left the cottage to Withnall. Withnall, having burnt through all his assets in London, moves into the cottage in Penrith and has been there ever since. They have some interactions and um, Marwood, I, yeah. at the end of the film, um, end of the sequel, just ends up driving back down to London. And that's, uh, that's okay. how it ends. But the interactions are the key part of it, really. When they're up there in Penrith... See, I was thinking, actually, that it would start with Marwood driving... And part of me wonders whether it should be uh, an old Jag still or not. <laughs> I do feel that was... I'm not, I wasn't sure whether that was Withnall's car or not. It's never clear, no. Yeah. Mm. Um, I would be if they just stole it, to be honest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe Uncle Monty's car. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're paying road tax. Like. Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's driving up the motorway and uh, he arrives at uh, a B&B that he's booked in, mm-hmm. uh, in Penrith. The owner of the B&B isn't there, uh, but... They've left a note that, you know, directing him down to the nearest pub to get dinner or whatever. And um, so he heads down there and uh, a chair in the corner facing away from the bar, uh, smoking, despite there being a smoking ban, is uh, <laughs> is with Noel. Cool. And um, there's obviously a bit of surprise that quickly 
quickly calms down. So this is the first time they've seen each other in the Indeed, 30 years yeah, since the end since, of the first film. Okay. Yeah, since the, since the breakup. Wow. Since, okay. since uh, Marwood cut his hair and went to Manchester. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not all that comfortable, really. They do kind of pick up where they left off in a way, in terms of, you know, conversations and relationship, but um, uh, or, you know, kind of relatability to each other. But there's not really a keenness to, uh, at least from Marwood, to... Um, spend time with Withnall. Is it more, is it sense that he's moved on more than, and Withnall's more in the same place? Is, is Withnall still very much this kind of dissolute alcoholic? Completely. Kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Marwood is uh, not sure of himself at all and mm-hmm. is, uh, has come up to try to, I don't know, um, rediscover who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps he, I reckon he might have had an inkling that Withnall was there. Okay. So he, while he's got he's gone up there kind of with the conscious, like, oh, I've, I've, got, a, I've got no plans, I'm not sure what I'm doing. To find Withnall there isn't a complete surprise, mm-hmm. and uh, and so perhaps there's that kind of under uh, that kind of back thought of like, well, maybe this is what he's looking for. And mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, Withnall invites him back to the cottage. Marwood um, wants to doesn't want to. He stays at the B and B. But um, when he meets the host the next day, she's um, adamant that he's a far more famous actor than he actually is. <laughs> um, she doesn't know any of his work, but she behaves as if he is, um, you know, this retired actor. Mm-hmm. I think we had some thoughts that she maybe be, could be played by Emma Thompson, was it? Yeah. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's always fun in roles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when in doubt, cast Emma Thompson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, it's not that she's trying to come on to him or anything. Yeah. But it's just that she. It, it's there are always all their interactions are always awkward. Yeah. He wants to be left alone, but he also kind of craves conversation. Mm-hmm. But the conversation that she gives is is comes in with too much prejudice like she thinks she knows who who or what he is yeah, yeah and he doesn't even know who or what he is and he just wants to talk about things that aren't related to acting or mm-hmm. anything um, has he in the interim like had a family or anything or is he is he still still very much like a loner or uh, i hadn't thought of that but i don't think it fits no for him to have had a family no because no. he's gay <laughs> Well, that's what I was... That's what, that's people what, don't have families. No, no, you're not... Okay, clearly that's my prejudice show. <laughs> but that's, that, that, it's funny what you were saying before, because uh, that's actually what it, it, it was going to come back to. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry, I didn't um, No, 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 it's fine. Uh, it was coming. But uh, through various walks around the area and in, and uh, being in town, being in, in the village, whatever, um, him and Withnall bump into each other a couple more times. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they end up in the pub together one night and they get blind drunk mm-hmm. and because of the awkward interactions at the B&B that Marwood has booked a few nights at he actually doesn't go back there and goes back uh, to the cottage with Withnall mm-hmm. they're good bed in separate rooms mm-hmm. the cottage is the same exactly the mm-hmm. same if not a bit danker and damper mm-hmm. um, to have the smell track you'd be able to smell that there was more mould in it this time around than there was mm-hmm. in the original film but in the middle of the night there's a scrabble around and there's a knock on the door and Withnall comes in and it's uh, it, it's definitely reminiscent of um, uh, Monty trying to have Marwood, even if it means burglary. Yeah. Monty humiliates me. Humiliates me. I adore you. Tell him if you must. I no longer care. I mean to have you, even if it must be burglary. <laughs> um, and um, again, Marwood is uh, completely like. You know, pushing him away and like, oh, what is this? Is it, oh, it's just terrifying and mm-hmm. all of this. And um, Withnall's actually completely off his face. He's found some lighter fluid. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, it's amazing and, he's still alive. <clears throat> that's becoming a regular part of his <laughs> rotation. Like. Yeah. And so the next day, actually, he, he remembers none of it. Okay. Withnall. And um, Marwood is left with uh, more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I mean, there are definitely more additions to the events that happen there, but the plot is simple. The plot mm-hmm. is basic. Marwood has been enacting for um, 30, 40 years. Yeah. This is, um, lost, lost touch with it. Doesn't know who he is or why he's in it, why he's done it all. Goes to Penrith to try to rediscover himself. Doesn't rediscover himself. Discovers mm-hmm. Withnall, mm-hmm. who tries to come on to him and doesn't work out. And uh, he ends up driving back and uh, that's the end of the film. Okay. Um, the sequel is called Becoming Back In Here. We're coming back in here. Yeah. Okay. Which is reminiscent of the line for when they were in the tea shop in Penrith. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the police, Miss Blenheim, has it. Just say there are a couple of drunks in the Penrith tea rooms and we want them removed. We are not drunks. We are multi-millionaires. Hurry up, Nebs. We'll keep them here till they arrive. They won't keep us anywhere. We'll buy this place and have it knocked down. Right, right, right. Please, please. 
Right. We're going. Our power's arrived. We'll be back. We're coming back in here. <laughs> so inevitably there's a scene in the tea shop which I haven't uh-huh. quite thought through yet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I hope the same Owen is still there. Exactly. Like in his early hundreds, just like... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as you said, like the thing is, these films, well, the, the film itself, obviously, it's so not plot driven. It's it is about just the dynamic between the two and like mm. the the chemistry. And so, yeah, I think a sequel would have to be true to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's really good. It reminds me a lot of the uh, the, the train spotting sequel. Did you get around to seeing that? Didn't see it. No, but it had that similar kind of vibe where you and McGregor's character's gone away and had a successful life, completely got gotten away from you know that scene that drug mm. scene in, in the Scottish council estates yep. he's gone to live in Amsterdam he's, he's divorced he's like you know he's regularly goes to the gym and stuff he's just very much like modern middle aged man yeah. and he goes back and it's like he gets sucked into it this world again where, yeah. where his friends they've not moved on they're the same as they were 30 years ago and, it's like, and he's, yeah. he's, he's kind of go falls back but he's also he can't ever be the same person because yeah. nobody's ever the same as they were when they when yeah. they're changing yeah. so yeah I think that's a, that's a really interesting it'd be really interesting to see I say I can't imagine other actors Recasting, please. Well, that's the thing. It's them. It's them it's exactly. Them but I would love to see that if those two, if they could find a way to pick up and do it in a way that was true to the original, yeah. in the way that that would be actually that sound, that would actually be really good. I would yeah. like. I would really want like to watch that. So. Mm. I wonder if if there's a space for policeman number two in it. Oh, there has to be. There has yeah. to be. Get in the back of the van. Policeman number two has to be recast, and that would be, I guess, maybe when they're driving back, mm-hmm. when Marwood is driving back at the end of the film, mm-hmm. uh, with Noel is driving him there mm-hmm. by some, some twist of fate. Marwood has got too drunk and Wisman has to drive him back. Okay. And then they, get pulled, they get pulled over. Okay. And, um, and um, Would it be the same line or would it be new line? No, I think that there'll be two policemen um, and uh, they pull them over and the line doesn't come out. Well, so there's one guy who's just... You couldn't replicate that line. You couldn't repeat it. But the, yeah, it's, it, it's just, you know, paying um, the kind of homage to yeah. that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but the two policemen... Are, what if it was done there. with a completely different delivery? Get in the back of the van. Or, or please, sir, would you please uh, yeah. get in the back of the van? <laughs> Don't make me ask you again. Yeah. <laughs> I can say it stronger. No. Yeah. <laughs> I did briefly consider making my entire sequel about the actor who played him. <laughs> the, the, there was no meat on the bone. I was like, well, what's his story? Like, <laughs> I want to build a whole world around that policeman's life leading up to that one moment. Like, yep, yep. <laughs> Ne- never spoken before in his life yeah like, maybe yeah maybe it was like uh, everybody thought he was a mute yeah yeah, yeah. all of a sudden he just comes out with that one line yeah get in the back of the van <laughs> <laughs> wow okay so Harry your turn oh great well I'm happy with, with both of your ideas because they are not what my idea is that's always good, good. so you've done a sequel you've done Whatever that was, <laughs> an intense <laughs> psychological exploration. Yeah, into it's sort of a sequel, but yeah, yeah, I'm not really sure what that was. So I've done a prequel. Okay, cool, all good. Um, which I'm calling Meeting with Nail. Meeting with Nail. Okay, yeah. right. Which does mean I've got to recast. Okay, fair I don't think Richard E. Grant can play a 20 year old. I'd like to see him try. <laughs> <laughs> so we start with a, a very well dressed Marwood running down the street. He's played by Taron Edgerton. Oh, from um, Kingsman. Kingsman, Kingsman. Right, yep. So he's clearly running late for something, and he walks into a building with a title above the door saying Camden College of Acting. Mm-hmm. Gets shown to an acting class where a teacher is just starting, and they're instantly all instructed to stand in a circle, follow directions from the teacher. Mm-hmm. So the teacher's going to just judge what their acting skills are like. Marwood's really into it, but the person next to him, a lanky, unhealthy man of about the same age, or unhealthy looking man, of about the same age with a awful hairline just <laughs> terrible for, for a 20 year old have you noticed that Richard E. Grant still has that same hairline it's though? weird isn't it it gives, it gives, I, it gives me had, hope I've had the same and yeah, same, we've had the same for, yeah. you know, at least 10 years yeah exactly yeah. So. Yeah. hope springs eternal <laughs> continue <laughs> yeah so this uh, this guy with the hairline is uh, he's really not engaged he's muttering under his breath so who, who am I going to cast as Richard E. Grant I've decided to go with Tom Felton who okay. played Draco Malfoy in Harry Potter. Nice. Wow. The only thing I've seen him in other than Harry Potter is in the first Planet of the Apes remake film, oh, where he gets to deliver the line, you get away from me, you damn dirty ape. Yeah. He was not good in that role. <laughs> no, he was, he, he, he was not great in that. But we'll give, it, we'll um, give him benefit of the doubt. I was really worried you were going to say uh, a character that I briefly thought of for him to play him in the prequel, which I would not like to see, but I thought kind of made sense, which is Russell Brand. 
Oh, but God. No, I, I, I don't want to see that, but no. I can no. see how some, there'll be a thought process that would lead to that. So, yeah. yeah. But no, Tom Felton, fine. Yeah, I find Tom Felton, he, he can be quite intense and dramatic yeah. if, the, if the role requires mm-hmm. it. It's certainly what he was in Harry Potter. Yeah. And he's got a little bit of that look around him in his face. Mm. And his hair would need to be completely different. Yeah. What about his kind of doppelganger, Jack Gleason from Game of Thrones? The one who played Joffrey? Oh, yeah. Because he can do that kind of very like impulse-driven, like, I want this and I want it now, I demand booze kind of thing. But I feel like he's a slightly better actor. And they, and they look so similar they've both got that blonde, like really Aryan like blonde piercing eyes kind mm-hmm. of I, I don't think I've ever seen them in the same room they, they do look they seem very similar looking I know Tom Felton's a little, little bit older but yeah. okay Tom Felton go with it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so they're going to break before the next activity in which uh, Marwood starts some conversation he says you okay you, you didn't seem to be enjoying that of course not this is fucking shit all of it do you not want to be here no I'm only here because my cunt of an uncle insists I do something respectable with my life so Marwood is completely intrigued by this and just like, right, what's going on here? Mm. Uh, after the class, they both go for a drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the pub, they order some drinks. Well, Withnell goes and orders some drinks. What be a good round? Well, the round they get in the London... Is it the same pub? Maybe, maybe, maybe we pay tribute where they get two... Was it two whiskeys or two gin and tonics and then two ciders? But they order it all at once. So it's like they just down... Oh, oh yeah, it was like... Two large gins and two ciders. Two large gins and two ciders. ciders. Yeah. They also said just ciders. I don't know if in the 60s there was only one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah. Uh, But yeah, I think you should... That's a good way of paying homage to the original is to get them to order like the exact same rounds in the same pot. All right. Same rounds. Great. And at least a spirit with a... a, Uh, Yeah. A spirit with a pint of some description, yeah. And then if if anyone ever calls time, they need to get like four of everything. Yeah. (laughs) Each. Time, gents, please. All right. We're going to have to work quickly. A pair of quadruple whiskies and another pair of pints, please. Yeah, so uh, Marwood is sort of drinking at, at a normal pace, but Withnell is really knocking the drinks back like at an alarming rate. Probably the rate that they did in, a, in the actual film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marwood tries to leave, saying, oh, I've had too many, it's getting late, which Withnell instantly calls bullshit on. Mm-hmm. And so they, they start this massive bender, essentially. And they're obviously both being very loud and rude to everyone in the pub, mm-hmm. so much so that they actually get kicked out of this bar. Right. So they move on to another one where it's all exactly the same. They're ordering these same rounds and they're loud and they're horrible. And eventually this one guy comes up to them and just says, Oi, could you keep it down? We're trying to have a drink here. Which uh, they're very scared by because this is a giant man. Okay. Similar to the guy in the first pub who calls them a ponce. Probably, yeah. That's that's what I was thinking, really. Okay. Don't know if there's anybody that we could cast as as, as that one. Well, that guy was Scottish as well. A A loud, tall Scottish man. A loud, big... Scottish yeah, yeah that'd be good. Please tell me you're now going to do a Scottish accent. No. <laughs> I'll kill the both of you. <laughs> Something like what he says. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And they run away in fear um, to the pub next door where they sit down, get some drinks, and Withnell gets out some drugs um, and offers to share a spliff with Marwood. Um, he says that he doesn't do drugs, mm-hmm. which is yet another thing that Withnell rejects. Just okay. says, no, that's ridiculous, let's do this. <laughs> so he just starts rolling this spliff and he starts smoking it. And the barman comes over and says, look, you can't you can't smoke that in here. To which Withnell goes off on a massive rant of like, I can smoke anywhere I damn please. This isn't weed, which it clearly is weed. Yeah. <laughs> Your smell thing would be... Uh, oh, the smell track. Smell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Marwood's like, no, come on, let's just leave. Let's just, let's just go, let's go. And Withnell's really arguing it. But in the end, the barman friends to call the police. And uh, they say, okay, but we're coming back in here. We're coming back in here. I'm liking all these callbacks. It's yeah. <laughs> So they do, they pick up their drinks and they go to leave. But as they open the door, their scary Scotch man from the last pub happens to be walking in. Um, oh, so that's not the same guy who just threatened them, this is somebody else? Or? Uh, no, the, well, uh, yeah, the same guy who threatened them um, from, the pre- from the previous pub. And they're now getting kicked out for smoking drugs. Oh, okay, pub. so they've gone from one pub to another. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, I get it, sorry, I missed the change of pubs. Okay. Sorry. sorry. Yeah. Yes, he's, he's walking in, they're walking out, they're not really looking where they're going, they're both blind drunk and a little bit high as well. Um, and Marwood pours his pint down him. Oh dear. And just completely wets his trousers. With Nail is the slightly smarter one and just bolts. Yeah. Just like dodges past him and just runs away. As um, he does in the film. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, well, Marwood completely misinterprets the situation and just says, mate, couldn't you hold it in? <laughs> um, just try and make fun of this scary monster of a man, which gets him a broken nose. Okay. <laughs> 
Did we just like do a smash cut of him saying that line to him with like a full broken nose? Like, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that's good. Um, okay, well, after this cut, they're uh, in, in another pub. Yeah. And uh, the barman makes it clear that it's uh, it's closing time soon, so the last orders and takeouts. Okay. So they go up and they order what's four it everything, be? Yeah. Four, four gins and four pints each. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the barman is quite young, uh, a young man who's not actually very confident with being authoritative. Okay. And so they've got all these drinks and they start drinking really slowly. And barman's there for ages and ages and ages, and he's saying like, "Come on, guys, can you can you straight drink up, please, drink up." Um. Two hours later, mm-hmm. perhaps a little title card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in real time, I think. <laughs> it's like a sex a six-hour film. <laughs> like a two- French art house movie. Yeah. Like- <laughs> <laughs> uh, so two hours later, they finally finish up their drinks and leave. And with Nell says, "Well, there's more drink and drugs back at back at my house." So Marwood follows with Nell home. Are they both in separate student accommodation? They're both in separate student okay, or right. something. And uh, it, with Nell's apartment is the apartment from uh, the first film. Okay. Which we recognise somehow, I guess. Maybe there's all the dishes in the sink and it's... Yeah. Just, oh, the general decor. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe it's probably a little bit cleaner. Like It's not ten years later when they're like... You know, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah, with Nell straight away goes to, goes to get some drinks and Marwa just sort of slumps back in an armchair um, and... He very slowly falls asleep as Withnail just talks at him for hours on end. Mm-hmm. And slow fade to black. Is that the end? That's the end. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I like it. A little meat cute. <laughs> so yeah, that was Meeting with Nail. Meeting with Nail. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I think that works too. That yeah, really nice. Mm-hmm. Quite happy with that. I was yeah. not confident when I, when I was going in. No, no. If, again, I think that... Your extravaganza. <laughs> I don't think mine would be very fun to watch. Though it's very much mine's very much like theoretical. There's not much, yeah. not much, not much to see on screen for mine. <laughs> mine's mine's not just a sequel as a lecture. But yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah. So this is why they're fucked up. <laughs> oh, great! Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm very happy with all of those. I mean, mm-hmm. they're really some really good ideas. I'd watch any one of those. Mm. Uh, cool. So if there's nothing else, we can get to some listener submissions. So Betamax Video Club at Betamax Pod, they suggested an Uncle Monty origin story, which okay. I'd be very keen on. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that'd be interesting to see how he came to be who he was. I mean, somewhat tragic tale about growing up, you know, over a pressed gay in the early 1900s or something. Like falling so. in love with vegetables. Falling in love, yeah, falling in love with... Well, I, I was, yeah, maybe, or just doing things with root vegetables, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it, it seemed like a lot of very heavy-handed symbolism of preferring cocks to vaginas. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't like dandelions, they're the whores of this... They're just whores for bees, that was it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't yeah. like dandelions, they're whores for bees. <laughs> root vegetables, there's something so seductive about a well-shaped carrot. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't subtle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that was all just yeah, an Uncle Monty origin story, which I think could be really interesting. Well, there could definitely be a bit of an exploration of his um, aversion to meat. Yeah, totally. Weeping in butchers. Mm. Maybe that's the title, Weeping in Butchers Shops, yeah. the Uncle Monty story. Yeah. He went to, was it Eton? Or, or uh, I think he went, maybe went to Ox, Cambridge or Oxford, because he's, yeah, he went, oh, you're an Eton boy, so it was like, mm. isn't it, that's the old, the other from well, where wasn't it Harrow? Or was it Harrow and Eton? Harrow, yeah. okay, sorry, yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know these things. Um, yeah. It could be a public, which is actually a private school story. Okay, um, yeah. That could feature some kind of terif- terrifying um, uh, act of embarrassment involving meat. Yeah, very much. Meat. Very um, possibly, yeah. I wonder. That could be interesting. Yeah, I imagine that'd be quite harrowing and sad, but also interesting. So harrowing. Oh, clever. Oh yeah, I didn't even. I did, didn't actually. That was a complete accident. <laughs> <laughs> we watch anything. At we watch anything. Their idea was kind of similar to yours. Kind of a train spotting two style kind of reunion story called With Nail and We. In which just the one E for that, <laughs> not with not with nailing you in, <laughs> which is plausible but not. Yeah. Uh, so in this version, similar to yours, it's the end of the nineties. Uh, Monty has died and left with Nailer's house. Uh, he's had a brief part in a BBC drama and he's now a regular cast member for The Archers, the right. radio show from Radio Four. Danny the Hippie's still around, but oh, in addition to dealing drugs, he also now organises upscale swinging parties, swingers parties, often using with Nail's house as kind of a venue for these kind of you know orgies. I, slash Marwood, has a successful stage career now. He's gone on to become a member of the RSC. And he most recently played Macduff in a production of Macbeth Mm -hmm. in um, London, I guess. And he's dragged along to one of these parties by his actress girlfriend, recognises the venue because it's his old flat, but he can't quite deal with the oddness of the whole situation of being back here and unexpectedly, etc. 
So he goes on a tour where he finds Withnail in a locked bathroom reading a play. And again, this is the first time they've seen each other in 30 years. Right, wow. So they renew their acquaintance and decide that they hate everyone else at the party. And yeah. you know, they, they bond over, in the, the way all good friendship bond over, mutual hatred of everybody else, including the girlfriend. Um, <laughs> they steal Danny's stash and head to the car, whereupon they end up just driving to Scotland for a festival. And they have lots of drug-fueled adventures on the, on the road. Wow. They get to Edinburgh and they just fall back into their own ways. And then Withnell's very happy because, you know, this was the best time of his life. He's reunited with his old friend. Marwood ends up meeting someone, a woman, presumably not his girlfriend who's left in London. Uh, she moves in with them and gets pregnant. This all seems to happen very quickly. I don't know what the time frame of the story is. <laughs> this gives Marwood a renewed sense of responsibility and he ends up meeting with a casting director who's been trying to talk to him at the festival, through which he's offered a small film role. Uh, once again, he ends up abandoning Withnell, this time with his pregnant fiancée in tow. And Withnell returns to London to find that an irate Danny has trashed his house and the, end, the film ends with him sat on the ruins of his sofa, smoking a cigarette, swigging from a bottle of flat Bollinger, and we hear his answer phone click in, and it's a message from his agent trying to tell him he's been cut from the archers, but his agent is trying, going to try and get him a role on Emmerdale, and then he throws the bottle at the answer phone, and we fade to black. So, yeah. Wow. So yeah, kind of similar to yours in the sense that they, they meet up, they have adventures, but then Marwood goes back to being Marwood, and yep. Nell is once again left alone. Yeah. Very sad. <laughs> and finally... This made me laugh. Uh, the final one is from Blokebusters, at Blokebusters. And theirs is a short film. It's a one, so short, it's a one-shot film, in which as there's a slow zoom onto two gravestones, and then the words, well, duh, show up on the credits. End of film. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, I see that. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> brilliant guys so yeah and that's all of our list of submissions for this week so thank you guys if you have a sequel idea for With Nail and I that you'd like to share with us or if you have an idea for a film we've done in the past or if there are any films you'd like to hear us do in the future please let us know we are beyond the box set you can find us on iTunes Stitcher Acast or good podcasting platforms you can also get in touch with us on Facebook Twitter or on our website www.beyondtheboxset.com if you like what we do please subscribe for a new episode every Friday and uh, leave us a review because it really helps us to find new listeners yeah. and so next week are we having another guest that's the plan. Wow, we are really getting popular. Um, yeah, there's so many bloody guests. I know, everywhere. we need to get back to just the two of us, really, in some yeah, alone it's time. Not, it's not yeah. the same, it's mm. not the same. Well, anyway, let's get this one over <laughs> with and then we'll... Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so next week we're doing Shaun of the Dead. Yes, great, really good one. Yeah, I've been looking forward to doing this for quite a while, actually. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, so that's, that's going to be a good one. And that's with A.D. Wheatley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that'll be our next week's film. So let us know your sequel ideas for that and we may read them out on our next episode. Yeah. Cool. Cool, all right. Well, Sam, have you got anything that you want to you wanna talk about, you want to plug? Yeah. It's a pretty cool t-shirt you're wearing. Yeah. Well, crikey. This was unexpected. <laughs> this, is re- this is reaching hundreds of people. Come on, to pl- plug your business. You never know. I don't feel, I don't see how it fits. It doesn't have to. Just what is Broken Spoke? Broken Spoke is a teaching organisation that okay. uh, teaches people how to ride and repair bicycles with more self-empowerment. Okay. And it's based in Oxford? It is indeed. Uh, is there a website people can go to to find out more about it? There is. It's really hard to uh, pronounce on a, an audio channel. Um, it's bsbcop.org. org. <laughs> it's um, not so hard. If you do it over the phone, it's uh, it's amazing. You do mm-hmm. a Bravo, Sierra, Bravo, Charlie, <laughs> Oscar, Oscar. Pa- it's it's really difficult. It's <laughs> difficult to tell people to Google Broken Spoke Oxford. Well, do you could do that too, listeners. If you happen to live around Oxford and have some bike-related queries, look out Broken Spoke. Mm. Cool. Well, thank you for coming. It's been a long time coming. It's been a pleasure to be to be hosted. You it's guys been are very welcoming. Thank you. You're very welcome. So great. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And yeah, we will see you next week. Yeah. See you later. Bye. 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 Get in the back of the van.